Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, speaks with Hamali Bal, Investment Director at Fidelity International, about how much Asia, especially China, has changed post-pandemic and whether investors can find new opportunities emerging in the world's second largest economy. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street, after another very long week in the markets and looking at the sort of global economy. You may notice that I'm not Sarah, I'm not going to pretend to be, Um, I'm likely going to be a pretty poor substitute. But happily, this time, we have another very special guest to make up for it in the form of Himali Bal, Asia specialist at Fidelity and one of the external superstars we employ on your behalf to sprinkle a little investing magic over your multi-asset class funds and portfolios. We've talked about this a lot before. There's obviously been a lot going on this week with the Federal Reserve, the ECB, more debt ceiling, jibber jabber and lots of data besides. Uh, But maybe we can finish off with that. Let's start off with the Asian investors' perspective of some of the events dominating daily news flow here. Himali, the the Federal Reserve and ECB obviously raised interest rates another 25 basis points each this week. We can get into whether we're finally near the peak of this hiking cycle in a little bit. But I guess my first question is, what is it that's been different about this interest rate cycle from an emerging markets perspective? Often in the past, an abrupt change in US interest rates, like we've seen in the last year, would devastate, you know, many emerging market and frontier economies. But touch wood, there hasn't been too many signs of that so far this year. No, there's no been no repeat of the sort of mid to late 1990s. So what are your thoughts? So first, thank you for having me. Well, I think this, what what you just described would be standard market behavior and standard market circumstances, but we have not been in standard market circumstances for a fair bit of time. I think the world that we know it, especially the investing world as we know it, has been redefined considerably over the last four years. And perhaps that's what we are seeing reflected in market behavior so far. So I just want to sort of break your question into two halves. One is what happens to stock markets when the Fed raises rates at that pace and what happens to economies? Typically, as you would know, emerging market economies are very sensitive to U.S. interest rate changes because the first impact and the most immediate impact is on currencies. Mm-hmm the currency movements become very stark for these economies, and especially if they have a lot of debt that's denominated in the US dollar currency terms, then servicing that debt becomes really, really expensive. Then what happens is that there's a very natural tendency for capital flow out of emerging economies towards US assets. Principally, it goes into US debt. So what's happened is that in the last four years, and I'm counting four because I think we are still we still haven't gotten out of the COVID phase pretty much, is that the backdrop has changed considerably. This pace of rate increase hasn't been seen at least in the last 40 years. We haven't gone from zero to 5.25 in a one-year period in forever. I mean, I don't, I mean, whatever little I know of history well, we haven't gone up at that pace. But there is a difference. Now, the difference is that principally emerging economies especially Asia, are a different kettle of fish today from what they were in the 90s. That The 90s was a very expensive lesson for Asia, particularly for the ASEAN region, with the, with the financial crisis that we saw in the late 90s in the likes of Indonesia and Thailand and Malaysia principally. 
So that was a wake-up call for many, many economies to sort of shore up their financial systems at first. To cut a long story short, there was a lot of cleaning up that was done by financial institutions, and that was also a wake-up call for the neighbors alongside these countries. So that, that was one. The other part that is really worth noting is that these economies, the Asian economies, have become a lot more consumption-driven today than they were in the 90s. In the 90s and the early 2000s were more about infrastructure, which needed a lot more external debt financing versus consumption today, which is more driven by income growth in these markets. And not only is consumption becoming a mainstay in these economies, and therefore the reliance is becoming more internal, the other aspect that's important to consider is the intra-regional trade within Asia. While the U.S. remains a key market for many of these countries as an export destination, there, is, there are also regional export destinations that have become important. For example, China has become an important export destination for Asian economies. And similarly, Asian economies are also importing a lot from China. And even within Asia, there are, there are these interlinkages that have strengthened that sort of reduce the dollar dependency versus the 90s. And that is a, a big shift. The other element of the shift is the differentiated growth rates that we have seen in the West versus Asia, even over the course of the last three years. The 2020 Asia was a shining star largely due to China, because they were the one engine that kept going on and on and on. 21 was a year of opening, but West sort of led the reopening story. And they had a spurt of growth. You can call it pent-up demand. You can say the checks from the Federal Reserve were clearly hitting the right mailboxes. 2022 is when the real Asian reopening started. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the culmination of 2022, when China got rid of its zero COVID policy rather unexpectedly when it did, this was a very big prompt for you know, assets to start flowing into Chinese equities again, because they had been underloved and oversold for so long. So we've had a very unusual market environment for flows to move around, which is not been seen in our living memory. And perhaps that's why emerging markets have proven to be relatively more resilient in the year that's gone by. Yeah, that's super interesting. And, and those rules, sort of the Asia for Asia, we had someone on talking about the sort of the K-pop phenomenon as one of the examples of Asia for Asia, really interesting kind of new phenomenon that's come around uh, in terms of that consumer story you mentioned there. One of the differences, but think about thinking you mentioned a couple of times about your perspective of as an investor and how it's evolved over that period. What's different since COVID? What are you seeing that's different in terms of Asia? Well, there is there are a couple of unique factors that have that we've all seen uh, in COVID. I'm going to start with the most apparent one. So think of your life before COVID. How many personal devices did you have? How many screens did you own? I would assume you probably had a mobile phone and you probably had an iPad in terms I'm of portable personal I'm an extremely late devices. adopter of everything. I sort of, yeah, still writing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, so I'm going to take an, but, but I'm just going to take a ballpark, right? Two screens tops because we went to work, we had desktops at work, we switched them off and we came home and we went about our business. Now come 2020, all of us, our lives sort of, they fused. There was no work and there was no home. It was all the same space, which meant that we all had to upgrade 
A, our devices, and B, the number of devices that we all owned. Now, how do those devices get powered? They get powered by chips. Who makes chips? Asia. I mean, Asia is the chip center of the world, and we sort of always knew that as investors, but COVID and first year of COVID really drove that point home. So if you look at the Asian equity markets over the course of 2020, what are the three markets that did brilliantly? Korea, Taiwan, and China. Korea and Taiwan were purely led by tech, and China was, because it was really the only market opening and functioning, it, it worked very well. So that was... That was a point that I think it's not, I wouldn't call it a transition, but I would call it a highlight. So the spotlight came onto Asian technology players, particularly the notable ones in Taiwan and in Korea. And the second thing that happened was the adoption of technology in markets that hadn't adopted it at the same pace. So let me explain that a little bit. So there are these markets of ASEAN, which is Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam, Philippines. They're collectively known as ASEAN markets. And these were markets that, you know, when you think of them as a non-Asian investor, the first thing probably that would come to your mind is tourism. What happened in these markets is that there were no tourists at all. But people still had to pay for things. People still needed to be educated. People still needed healthcare. So there was a massive wave of technology adoption or technology services adoption, I should say, that happened in ASEAN. So we have data from Bain & Company that tells us that the digital technology services segment in ASEAN had a 33% growth rate in one year. And that was all thanks to COVID. Mm. So you can see the interlinkage between demand for technology, adoption of technology in markets that had this far not been so receptive to uh, technology. So that was, that was a massive shift. The third thing, interestingly, was that the EV sector got a lot, lot of attention in COVID. Mm -hmm. And if you stop and think about it, oil prices fell to less than $10 a barrel in April 2020. And in that environment, we still had people talking about EV. It was one of those momentum stocks that everybody wanted to buy. Fourth thing that, that I, I do want to talk about a little bit was the geopolitical stress that got magnified in the last four years. I mean, it had already started pre-COVID. There was questions of supply chains shifting from one place to the other. So it sort of stalled in COVID, but the supply chain diversification dialogue has come back positive for Asia. And the fifth element that's become important for us as investors who focus in a very significant way on fundamentals, which is how good is this business? How good is its growth trajectory? How good is its management team? How solid is its balance sheet? These are the 101 essentials for us to focus on as investors. So to give you a broader example, we have some very high quality drug research companies in China that have very long-standing tie-ups with drug manufacturers in Europe and the U.S. And these companies have been put on unverified lists, which has not done any favor to how these businesses are perceived. Now, interestingly, their revenue streams haven't shrunk, their profit pools haven't shrunk, but the way the market values them has changed trust. And that's, that's a bit of an element of extraneous factors that have no control coming to the investment narrative. So th th those are a few things that have happened. But what's also important as just a marker is how 
if you just all pause and think about 2020 for a second again, China continued to consume. This was a point when the world was shut, but China was continuing to consume. So it tells you the kind of demand that exists in that economy. So the consumption narrative in Asia remains really strong. Uh, we also have China as one of the few markets which also has one of the largest saving rates in the world, and and that is significant, particularly when you go through periods of crunch in terms of being able to go out and actually work. I mean. Some of us are extremely fortunate. We work in environments where all we need to do is open another screen or buy another screen and, and continue to work. But that's not true for everybody. But if you have an economy that's backed up by that level of saving, it is it does provide a cushion. That's so interesting, and there's so, yeah, there was so much in your say. So what, uh, the, your point four on the sort of geopolitics that's obviously very current to the moment with regards to the speeches mm-hmm. that are going on right this week coming from the US in terms of perhaps a more conciliatory tone on one hand, but some sort of uh, obviously more restrictions in other areas. And that point about the, you know, China's consumer and the savings rate, we've talked on this podcast before about sort of, you know, the potential for hooker reform and how that could unleash on the statistics are amazing, aren't they, in terms of the people living in cities, but not quite accessing the full might of what could happen, uh, the full potential of what could happen in terms of schooling and so on. And I guess that's, that, that really leads me on to my next question, zeroing in on China a little bit. Well, you know, that's obviously the whale in the bathtub with regards to many things mm. in the region now. What are your concerns uh, in the road ahead? You know, there are obviously some wobbles. The state has got quite a tightrope to walk with regards to a sort of wobbling property market and all those stories you mentioned there. Uh, what are you most concerned about? Well, I, I would just, before we get into concerns, I do want to say a few things about perceptions impacting valuations and perception impacting flows. So if you look at the data that's come out, so last week, actually this week is Golden Week. It is the first of May is a holiday in China, and so it just spreads out to the whole week. So they have five days off. This is a Golden Week. The Chinese consumer, or the Chinese broadly, have spent $21 billion dollars in one week. 274 million Chinese have traveled in this one week. So we've obviously had a lot of property-related worries coming onto the fore and, and impacting how, because the property correlation to consumption in China is very strong, yeah. because traditionally property was the one asset that the Chinese could buy. It was a very Asian mindset of leaving something for the next generation, so that is property. So obviously, investment in property is sort of the one thing that is prioritized in Asia and particularly in in markets like China and India. So the property story and and deservedly got a fair bit of attention last year. But if you look at what's happened this year, in Beijing, you can now sell a house without paying off its entire mortgage, which was not allowed previously. So you buy a house, your mortgage, you haven't paid all of it, but you're allowed to sell it, which wasn't allowed previously. So instead of doing big bank reforms as China's known for in the past, they are slowly and steadily plowing their way forward. And again, going back to what we started out with, the market expects patterns, the market likes patterns. And when those patterns are broken, the market feels very disoriented about what to do and what not to do, which is why having fundamental research on the ground, having footprint on the ground, which gives you on the ground insight, but transmits on the ground insight to people who actually invest which is what we do have at Fidelity. We have a base of analysts that are based in Shanghai that feed us information nonstop. 
what we've come to realize is that the market is not interested in these minor improvements because they are waiting for that big stimulus push to come through. And China, for once, is saying, let it happen organically. And the market doesn't quite like it. Mm-hmm. And all the media amplification that we were just talking about is not helping the case either. So we are seeing property sales recover from fairly poor levels last year. So if you check property sales, they are they are beginning to trend up. And we are happy with that trend up because all this while China has been accused in some ways of saying you're manipulating growth through stimulus. And this time they're refusing to launch mass scale stimulus at least this far. And they're saying let organic growth take its natural course of action. So that's heartening for us to see. The other thing that's heartening for us to see is that the percentage of new loans, if you look at new loans as a percentage of GDP, that's also going up in a very visible manner. I'm talking about commercial loans, so that's coming back. And that's that's also a positive sign for us to see. What will always be a risk in China is regulation. We know that. And we often at Fidelity talk about this is an element that no one can control. But what we are fairly confident of is that the Chinese policymakers and the Chinese government are very keen to be pro-growth and to be seen as pro-growth. The last year's growth rate was probably the weakest that China's ever seen. And they will be absolutely unwilling to repeat that kind of pace of growth. So the target that they've set for themselves is a very realistic target that they will do their best to surpass. If you had to ask us about what are the risks that we are worried about, I think there's always execution risk everywhere in the world. And that's not unique to Asia. I think that that's valid across the world. But the risk right now is in terms of what is noise and what is reality. Because market moves more in response to noise and and internalizes reality at a slower pace than we as fundamental investors would like it to. Or at least we hope it does, because there's the opportunity uh, that we can... Yes, uh, absolutely, uh, it is. For the specialists like you to make us uh, the money. And uh, and the point you make there several times about sort of having expertise on the ground, uh, again, that's a really important point that we try and sort of hammer in on this Mm. podcast, really boring you probably, is that as an individual investor, you've got to try and work out, can you compete uh, against the expertise Mm. of having people on the ground? people specializing in particular areas uh, as a generalist you've not got much chance most of the time it's a very competitive game and in terms of you mentioned a couple of things that you might be uh, through this podcast so far about what you're most excited about more broadly but I guess what are the sort of longer term things that you're thinking about that you're excited about in the region that you're thinking mega themes that might play a play a role for us fundamentals are absolutely non-negotiable There are stories that are told, and then there is reality that plays out. And being able to differentiate the two, for someone who really is investing to save for a rainy day, save for old age, save for X, Y, Z, it's it's a really important phenomenon to know because there are these momentum or tactical opportunities that everyone talks about. But this is, at the end of the day, your capital that you're investing, and we value that trust that you put in us. So a couple of things I want to talk about long term if we talk about Asia. One of the things is, again, going back to the 90s, Asia was not known for corporate governance in the 90s. No, it was not. <laughs> and, and that has significantly altered in the 2020s. Significant, there is a significant appreciation for good management teams. 
the market values them differently. There's a different valuation advantage that you get when you have good management teams. Good management teams make good capital allocation decisions. They think about their societal impact. They think about their environmental impact. And you're seeing more and more professional management take charge in Asia all over, not just in pockets, but all over. The other thing that really excites us about is, excites me in particular, is how Asia's diversity still remains so underappreciated. Everyone, when you say Asia, they think China. And that difference, and as much as we value China, and it's an absolutely non-negotiable element of investing in Asia, but it tends to overshadow the other opportunities that you have in Asia. So, for example, India, where domestic consumption is such a strong driver of the economy. In terms of demographics, India and Indonesia are two shining stars in Asia. They have about 7% or 8% of their population is above 65, and the rest is all below 65. So the working age population in these two countries is phenomenal. And the next on in line is Philippines, which also has a similar yeah. profile of working age population, which then has implication for what income growth will be like in the region, and then has implication for what consumption will be like in the region. And not just consumption, it also has implication not what the quality of consumption will be like in the region for, from a longer term perspective. So just going back to China briefly, while China is does not have the demographic advantage it had 10 years ago, the quality of consumption in China is upgrading. So there are a lot of homegrown brands that cater to various segments of uh, consumption, you call premium brands, you call them athleisure brands. There is there is so much that's happening on the ground, and then these create opportunities as investors. The third thing that's really important is the supply chain diversification. If you are a manufacturer, you have steadily started to diversify your supply base. So if you have a Uniqlo T-shirt and Uniqlo is a Japanese brand, they could they make in China, they produce in Vietnam, they produce in Cambodia, so they produce everywhere. But this supply chain diversification is an incredible shift that's happening on the region. Because if it's going from the likes of China, in some measure to the likes of ASEAN countries that I was just talking to you about earlier, it means that for these ASEAN countries, there is a natural tailwind for employment. It also means there's a natural tailwind for real estate demand. Interestingly, interesting fun fact that I'd like to throw in this conversation, most people would not know that in, one of Intel's largest plants is actually in Vietnam. And Samsung has a very significant manufacturing capacity in Vietnam that they've only been adding to. This is what perception versus reality. This is what you know by being on the ground and this is how you see it when you're far away. Going back to supply chains again, we will also see then that the demand for labor will be steady. That means people will have steady source of employment. That also means that there will be room for upskilling. Mm -hmm. So the potential to explore the possibilities and the multiplier effect of all these changes is immense. And it sort of trickles down when you look at near-term growth rates for the next two years. It's a fairly common narrative to now say that the West might be in a slightly recessionary phase for the next year 18 months, while Asia's growth rate is still expected to be ballpark 4%. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I'm, and I'm just giving a ballpark number. I'm not, and because specific economies will do differently. And then let's not forget the effect of automation. So lots, lots to explore, uh, and and the footprint to explore it with. We are very excited about Asia. Yeah, it's super interesting. So, uh, Himali, thank you so much. That was uh, an amazing insight. And, and and this for regular listeners, this is why we have a large allocation to emerging markets, equities and credit, government debts, all sorts of emerging market that's dominated by Asia exposure, obviously, just because of the size, the growing size in its, uh, uh, you know, in global markets. Now, in terms of the stuff we didn't quite get to, forgive me, uh, Himali, we've just got to do the update for the week. In terms of the st- stuff we didn't get to uh, from the week just past, I can summarize it thusly. So the US uh, leading and lagging data uh, seems to be finding a little bit more agreement on the path ahead on the gloomy side. So cracks are finally starting to appear, admittedly a bit unevenly uh, in labor demand. And the ISM surveys are tilting gloomy when taken together. Europe is still doing a little bit better than kind of feared earlier, sort of that had been feared coming into the year, a warmer winter and the resulting plunge in energy prices, as we've talked about, that's key. Inflation is not yet beaten. We would remind everyone if there is a mispricing, our tactical team is eyeing up in particular. It's probably how many cuts in interest rates are priced into the US interest rate expectations curve by the end of the year. We see the potential for the Federal Reserve and perhaps even other central banks to stay at peak rates uh, for some time. That's underappreciated in our opinion. For those looking for more detail on the US debt ceiling, an incoming kind of macroeconomic asteroid we've been talking about that still should be shoved off path at some point. We've written about that on LinkedIn for those um, interested. Otherwise, what I can say is just thank you so much for listening and, and Himalayan. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and expertise. This comes with Best wishes to all of you from the team here at Barclays and we'll uh, welcome you back next week for another edition. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.